Glad you're here today. We're in Luke chapter 19, verses 45, actually into the next chapter, verse chapter 20, and we'll walk all the way through verse 8. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Last week we saw the celebration. We saw him coming in and on the colt of a, a donkey and the celebration of his coronation and him being crowned king, being received as king by the people of Jerusalem. That celebration really started inside his disciples, like that closest group began to celebrate, and then their worship, their praise, it began to spread into the multitude of his disciples that had come and, and sought him out because of what they had heard he was doing. But right in the middle of that, in the midst of all the celebration, in the midst of the excitement, Jesus gets a view, gets his sight on Jerusalem, and he begins to weep. I mean, not just, not just cry a little bit, not like you're, you're wrestling with tears in a movie and, you know, you have a tear falling. He is sobbing. He is grieving. He's mourning. And he begins to lament and prophesy. And so here we see this picture of a king taking on the role of a prophet. He begins to prophesy. And he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. Just demonstrative of the conflict that is at play. I mean, the conflict is real, and it is already intense. Since Lazarus' resurrection, uh, the, the, um, the leaders of the, Druze, of the Jews had already begun to seek to kill him. I mean, this isn't the first time, but it's, it's now, you know, they have got to rid themselves of him, and they are seeking to kill him. But what's about to happen as he now enters into Jerusalem and begins his ministry there is going to crank the conflict up. Like it's going to crank to 11. It's going all the way up. And I mean, there is a fight. And in fact, if I hadn't used Michael Buffer's let's get ready to rumble last week, it would be perfect for this week because there is going to be a fight. Uh, in fact, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he's bringing the fight with him. And, and this is radically different than, than we ever really think about Jesus. We talk about him being meek and mild and compassionate. And those are all true. But he is serious about the glory of his father, about the truth of his word, and about the work that he's been sent to do. And so, so he's bringing the fight to, to, to Jerusalem, and, and, and the Jewish leaders are going to respond with a fight of their own. Truth is, this is kind of where we all meet Jesus. I know it doesn't always feel like that. And in fact, as we, as we make gospel proclamations and we try to lead people to the Lord, we're doing everything we can to, to minimize that, right? Like, we, we don't want to teach truth because that might just run somebody off. It might just offend somebody and, and push them away. And, and the reality is, is that, that the gospel has an offense. It, it, it confronts us. It confronts us at the deepest levels of our deepest convictions. Uh, Jesus taught things that, that told us if we want true life, that, that, that the true life was only available by giving everything else up in this life. You've got to die here to have it there, to seek first his kingdom, not all the things that the world would offer you. The, it, 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 can, it, it contradicts all the lies that the world would have us believe. It, it, it contradicts all the lies that the world would tell us. In fact, as the gospel unites us to Christ, it actually separates us from the world. We've studied that in the book of Luke, that he came not to bring peace but a sword. There's a reality that in the gospel itself, there is confrontation, there is conflict. This is an aspect of the gospel we don't often talk about. And, and, and here's the thing, is there's a reality. You can be a jerk and you can make somebody mad and you can run somebody off. 
But if you do, if you follow the example of Christ and you bring truth in grace, then the gospel will confront them all they need to be confronted. And they may run off, but the gospel doesn't run anybody away. It either hardens the hard or it softens those who it intends to soften. We got to give up on this idea that there's never a time for conflict, that there's never a time for confrontation because that's not the example that Jesus sets and it's not the way that Jesus did it. And just so happens in this passage that we're studying today, man, we see that confrontation. It's right in our face. No way, no way to avoid it. And we're going to see the reactions. We're going to see the reactions, the people who are hanging on his every word, who are liking, they're eating up what he's saying, they're trusting and it's changing them. We're going to see some, there, there's an implication of some that would just reject it by ignoring it, not, not wanting to step in. And then the, there's those that would do anything they could to destroy the idea of Jesus and his message off the face of the earth. So let's study it and see what's in it for us. Starting in verse 45 of chapter 19, it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. You see that? Seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his Words, two different reactions to the same message, the same works. One day, as Jesus was teaching the, God, the, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. At the heart of the conflict is this this rejection of who Jesus is is and whether or not he has authority to do what he's doing. We see him accepting and even affirming the praise of those who would crown him king, right? Just just the day before. So so if you follow the timeline, you have the timeline of of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, uh, uh, being praised by the people. And when the Pharisees said, shut them up, he said, no, he receives it. He recognizes himself as king. He recognizes them recognizing him him as king is right and good. So he sees himself as king, and then he begins to prophesy. It's not the first time we've seen him prophesy, but he takes on the role of a prophet, and he begins to speak God's word. He's been doing that all along, but, but here we see it clearly directed at the city and the people of Jerusalem. Jesus, the prophet king, is now taking his place as the true high priest. And everyone, everyone, regardless of how they feel about him or whether they like him or not, is subject to his authority. It's just the way it is. They didn't like it. They didn't didn't want it. They weren't looking for it. But it was the way it was. He comes in on the triumphal entry and 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 he affirms it. 
And then the very next day, he comes into the city. So if you follow the timeline, he, he left that night. He goes back to Bethany. He left the night after the triumphal entry. He goes back to Bethany, probably stays in the house of Mary, Mar- Martha, and Lazarus, who were friends. It's about two miles away from Jerusalem. The next day, he comes back. He comes back into Jerusalem, and he goes right to the center, right to the center of the Jewish faith, the temple. It's like, th- this is not just the capital of the faith. This is the well, I mean, I guess it's the capital building. Like, this is the place. This is the center of all of Jewish faith and practice. And just, like his, just like his triumphal entry, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Malachi, writing hundreds of years before, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his Temple. Now, just let me just go ahead and point it out here. You've already heard a reference in the text about John the Baptist. This is a prophecy of John the Baptist coming and preparing the way, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is Jesus fulfilling his prophecy, just like he told his disciples he would do. He is bringing it to them. He is putting it in their face. He climbs on the colt of a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem and he is affirmed as the king. Now he comes into the place that the prophecies say he will go and he goes directly there. He walks into the temple and when he gets there, he doesn't like what he finds. In fact, it makes him angry. And the confrontation, the conflict is turned up. I mean, cranked up right to number 11, right? I mean, it goes off. I want you to think about this. This temple is is the center of God's work in the world. This is where God interacts with people. I brought a picture of it so that you can see what's kind of happening here, so that you'll be able to kind of picture it in your mind. And if you look right here so this is the this is the holy place like inside of that building is where all the all the uh, most holy things happen like day of atonement the priests enter into the to the most holy place and that's one time a year a day of atonement kind of thing but on the passover what happens is it is a it, it, it's a um, a pilgrimage celebration and what happens is people from all over Jerusalem men of all ages any any man who is 13 or over is expected to come to Jerusalem and 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 partake in the Passover and so so the the city grows by a crazy amount of people like there's estimates I came in my reading in my study I came across estimates of the city growing by 2 to 300,000 people to 1 to 2 million people. So I, we don't exactly know but the city grows by a massive amount of people. And all of those people are coming to partake in the Passover, which is going to be focused on and centered in the 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 temple. And so what happens is is that this place is filled with people. And on the outside, so on the inside of these big walls is all restricted for people from Israel. So there's the court of women, the court of men. But on the outside, along here, alongside inside these porticos, it's called the court of Gentiles. It's a massive space. Massive space. And when Jesus walks in, it's not filled with people worshiping. It's filled with people selling and cheating and robbing. You see, you'd think it would be convenient. you think that he would almost be excited about seeing this because, man, it would be convenient for these people who are traveling from northern Galilee coming to the temple to, to just be able to pick up an animal while they're there for the sacrifice. 
It'd just be convenient. You think that it would, we're serving them by, by giving them temple money that they can use in the temple so that they can actually buy their animals to sacrifice. We're serving them. And we're not letting any of that filthy, dirty Roman money or any kind of Gentile money in. It's all good stuff. And Jesus comes in. And he begins to drive them out. See, here's, here's the reality. What was going on inside of that was inside of that temple, inside of the court of Gentiles, was not honoring to God at all. They had set up a racket. They had set up a way in which they could f- fill their own pockets. So, so they would come, yeah, oh yeah, it's convenient. We'll just buy a, a lamb when we get to Jerusalem. They sell them in the temple. We'll change our money and we'll, and we'll buy that lamb when we get there. We don't need to carry our own. But buying a lamb in the temple was like buying food at Silver Dollar City. You're going to pay more, way more than it's worth. You're going to, I mean, they call it Steal Your Dollar City for a reason, right? I mean, that's, that there's a reality. You know you're going to go and buy potatoes for about $10 more than you'd buy them for out here. I mean, it's just the way we do it. Those spiral potatoes, they, they're worth a buck and we spend 10 That's the way it was happening. This lamb was, was so, many, so many dollars a pound, and, and because, it's, because it's a lamb, sold in the temple, pre-inspected, well, they'd sell it for way more than it was worth. And, 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 and in to, on top of it, not only would they sell you a pre-inspected lamb so that you didn't have to carry your own, if you did carry your own, they would inspect it for you to make sure that it meet the biblical criteria. But that's like going and getting your car inspected. It depends on whether the, who's doing the inspection to determine how the, how the rules are going to be applied. Oh, you know, I kind of see a blemish there. Oh, there's a spot on that one. That just doesn't meet this. You, you better go, go ahead and go buy one. So not only have you carried one there, but now it's been denied, it's been rejected, and so you've got to go buy one anyway. Oh, and by the way, before you buy one, you've got to exchange your money with us. But again, that wasn't even a, a fair trade. The exchange rates were exorbitant. And, and on top of that, the exchange rates were bogus. Like they didn't, the temple money was only ever used in the temple. So here's what's happening. On one end of the table, you got this guy who says, hey, you want to buy something in the temple? Give me your money. I'll give you temple dollars back. Okay, that sounds great. So you give him 10 bucks and he gives you five bucks worth of temple money. It would have been, it just wasn't valued the same way. In addition, you couldn't go anywhere else and spend it. Oh, but, but, but I really need 10 bucks to go buy that lamb. Okay, well, give me, give me 10 bucks or, or, or give me 10 bucks more and I'll give you another five. And so, so you're getting ripped off. Well, wh- what happens is then you take your temple money and you go to the other end of the table and there's the guy selling the lambs. And he says, hey, give me your temple money. So you give him your temple money after you've already given this guy your real money and, and after the sale's over, you walk away with your lamb. He takes that temple money and hands it right back and so it just ends up in this vicious cycle where there's this limited amount of money inside the temple that's just constantly getting circulated. All that's happening is funneling more and more and more and more and more real money into the temple. And so the temple's getting rich. The, the, the people who work in the temple, the people who make the decisions, they're profiting off of their people. It's crazy. It's really kind of ironic because they were so angry. They were so vicious towards the tax collectors. And yet, 
They were doing the exact same thing under a religious heading and calling it holy. So Jesus, Jesus drives them out. The temple was intended to be a place of communing and interacting with God. It was a place that you were supposed to be able to go and, 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 and be with him, to interact with the God of the universe, the God who created all things. This has always been the purpose of the temple, even all the way back in the first temple. So, so the picture of the temple I showed you just a minute ago, that temple is a temple that was built by Herod. It had just been completed a few years before Christ was born. The, or, or maybe even right after he was born, but it's brand new. The very first temple, when Solomon is, is consecrating it, when he's dedicating it for use after the first temple had been completed. And the Ark of the Covenant is carried in and it's brought into that most holy place and it's put in position. Solomon says, likewise, in 1 Kings 8, 41-43, likewise, when a foreigner, not a Jew, not, not, not somebody who has transitioned over, not someone who, is, who has become Israelite by faith or by uh, adherence to the law. When a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake. And then there's this aside, there's this statement of fact. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. There's an expectation that as the temple serves its purpose, as God works in and among his people, the nations will hear it and come. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as you do your people as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name the temple was consecrated for the purpose that the nations would see the glory of God, fear the glory of God and submit under the glory of God so that they could interact and call upon the glory of God But that's not what it was being used for. In fact, as Jesus walks in and he doesn't like what he's seeing, he calls on two Old Testament passages. My house is to be a house of prayer. He draws this. He says that it's written. He draws this out of Isaiah 56, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Listen, here's, here's where he draws it from. For my house, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For who? All Luke leaves that piece out, and we don't know if Jesus said it. Out of this telling, we don't know that Jesus necessarily said it, but he draws it from this place where his house is a house of prayer for all peoples. There to come and to be able to interact, to be able to call on, to be able to submit under, to be able to look for God to act on their behalf. And Jesus says, but you've made it a den of robbers. He draws that out from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Has this house 
which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. He knew this day was coming. He knew the day would come where his house would be used to profane his own name, to to work in opposition to his purposes. Instead, Instead of a place of worship, instead of a house of prayer, it had become a hideout for crooks and criminals. All under the auspices of religious action. And Jesus drives them out. Now this is no small thing. You saw the, on the image, you saw the size of the court of the Gentiles. This would have been full of people. Two, two to three hundred thousand or maybe even upwards of million to two million people swelling into Jerusalem, filling the temple, seeking to buy, seeking to come into the temple and offer their sacrifices filled with people. And Jesus drives them out. We don't even, Luke is so, I mean, he gives us such a small, small piece of what happens there. This didn't happen in just a couple seconds. It tells us in Mark and Matthew and Mark's account, it tells us that he's flipping tables. He's throwing them over. Get out of my house. Leave. Get away from here. This is to be a house of prayer and you're a robber. You have no place here. And, and depending on your take, John tells us a, another account. Some people think that it was a, 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 an earlier event. Some people think it was the same event, that, that when Jesus was, was there, that, that he made a whip. Regardless of whether, he was, whether it was two accounts or one, one account, whether it happened early and late, or whether this all refers to one time, the reality is Jesus wasn't taking their junk. He was sending them away, and he was being forceful about it. In fact, the word that Luke Luke chooses there, the the word that he uses to express what Jesus did there, is the same word that that he uses for driving out demons. There's this idea of excessive force, of expelling with force. I'm sorry, not excessive, but an idea of expelling with force in the same way that he would drive a demon out, in the same way that he would drive evil out of a person. He's driving these crooks, these fake leaders, these false people. He's driving them out of a place that he intends for his purposes. He removes the dishonest trade that was displacing worshipers and their worship so that the worship that was intended to take place there could take place. And what's beautiful, when he's done, every day he teaches in the temple. So, so, so this is probably Monday of the last week of his life before crucifixion. And every day from there until the day that, that, that he's tried and, and crucified, every day he's in the temple teaching. He displaces the impurity that man had, had allowed to creep in, that man had chosen to bring in. He displaces that impurity with his own purity, the purity of his presence and the purity of his message. He teaches and he takes up residence. He, and for that week, for that week, a week, you think about it, this, it would have been like Christmas. This would have been like Black Friday, and that's what it's called, right? Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. That, this would have been the day of the year that they expected to make the most of their money. All of these hundreds of thousands of people crowding in, wanting to buy. And Jesus stops them. 
So what happens? It tells us in verse 47 and 48, they got mad. He had confronted them at the place of their deepest desires, their deepest longings, and they reacted. They sought to destroy him. That's one reaction. What do we do when he tries to take something from us we love? It shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, it's not one of us that don't have love for things that, that when he begins to mess with them, that, that we don't kind of bristle up, that we don't seek to go and do our own thing. These, these, these people were so committed to their way of life, to their own thoughts and their own promises, and the, the, the promise that they'd made themselves, that, that they just wanted to destroy him. But they couldn't. Because the people, the people hung on his every word. Because as Jesus was sitting there preaching and teaching in this freshly purified temple, there were people that were receiving it, believing it, and it was entering into them and changing them. So since they couldn't destroy him, they decided to challenge him. And, and look who does it. Look who does it. In chapter 20, verse, verse uh, 2, or I'm sorry, verse 1, it says, One day as Jesus was teaching in the temple and, and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. So here you have not just average, everyday guys that work out in the synagogues. Like this, These aren't people who are distant from Jerusalem. These are the people who rule and reign in Jerusalem. These are the, the chief priests and the, and the elders, the people who wield authority, the people who exercise authority over these people. The scribes who determine what the word says, the chief priests who enact it and enforce it, and the elders who serve as the people's leaders come to Jesus and they challenge him. By what authority do you do these things? And I, I think it's beautiful. They didn't like it. I'm sure they didn't like it, but but he won't even answer their questions. Like he's going to give them an answer, but it's not an answer to their question. It's just another question. These, these, these men, these men that would tell everyone else what to do would expect Jesus to submit. And he won't. In fact, he puts them in a place where they're forced to deal with with his authority. Now, here's why that's significant. So I've been kind of talking about and hinting towards the prophet, the, the, the prophet role that he fills, the king role that he fills, and there's so much more I could say about that. I, I won't be able to do that today. But, but so, so, so here's the reality. The prophet, for 400 years, they had lost the, the, the voice of the prophets. They, the prophets had been silenced since Malachi. He, he, for 400 years, they'd been longing to hear God's voice through his prophets. And when the prophet comes, the prophet begins to point to the next prophet. And John the Baptist begins, John the Baptist, that prophet, the one whom they affirmed as prophet, begins to point to Jesus as the prophet, the one who he was to be followed by. And we see Jesus take on that role and begin to prophesy and to begin to be the prophet. And they were longing for that. They were looking for the prophet. 
The king had been unseated. Rome was now their king. They didn't like it. They couldn't stand it. They wanted everything but that. They wanted their own king from their own people to be established for eternity. They were looking for that promise to be fulfilled. But the king had been unseated. And so for Jesus to enter into the city and be called the king, I mean, there's this massive amount of prophecy, this massive intentional moment that's being exercised and fulfilled in that process. He comes as a prophet king. And in this moment where the chief priest walks up and the elders and the scribes come to him, the people who had authority, they come to him and they challenge his authority and he puts them down. He puts them in their place and he exercises authority over them. And this prophet king displaces the priesthood. And he takes up residence in his house, the true high priest. These guys lose I'm not going to answer your question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question instead. Was John the Baptist's baptism from heaven? Did he have authority to go prophesying and baptizing people? That's the question. And these guys aren't stupid. They're no dummies. They, they understand what's at stake here. If we begin to affirm John the Baptist, then we affirm Jesus, because John the Baptist's message had been that Jesus was the Messiah. He had baptized Jesus, and the heavens opened up, and God spoke from heaven, and the Spirit came down on him like a dove. John saw him coming in the crowd one day, and he says, There is the Lamb of God. Come to take away the sin of the world. John, when challenged even by his own disciples about everybody going off and follow, beginning to follow Jesus, says, I must decrease, he must increase. John understood his role. Even in the prophecies, he understood his role. He's only a messenger sent to prepare the way that must get out of the way so that the true Lord, that the Lord could come quickly into his temple. And so he comes in and he puts them in their place by demonstrating his authority over them. They cannot answer. And the reality is they can't answer because they don't want to affirm him. They can't accept him as their prophet and king. They will not recognize him as the true high priest. And they don't want to submit to his authority. So they can't affirm John the Baptist. But more than that, they can't deny John the Baptist because they're scared to death they will be stoned. So you just look at this. Here are these men, these leaders of this nation under the auspices of religion who have set up a system that robs and cheats and oppresses people. But more than they love the money, they love themselves. In fact, the temple worship was no longer about God's glory. It had become about their own. It, it, it had become about them holding their position and, and fighting for their rights and, and, and their own glory. Who do you think you are coming into our house and telling us what we should do? Jesus, the prophet king, 
has taken his place as the true high priest. And whether they liked it or not, everyone is subject to his authority. This especially has implications. This, this has implications even for today, especially within the church, especially among God's people, not just this church, not excluding this church, but the church as a whole. Because just as Jesus prophesied, just as Jesus promised that the temple's torn down, the temple's moved off, but Jesus doesn't cease being prophet, he doesn't cease being king, and he doesn't cease being high priest, but he moves his temple. And his temple is his people. This is the, the idea that, that's expressed throughout the New Testament. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. As Jesus makes peace with us and God, and, and then between each of us, he says, in him, chapter 2, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are being built by God and his Spirit into a place where he can dwell. It's his temple. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves like living stones are being built together, are built up as a spiritual house. You're a temple. You're being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You, uh, he's the high priest, we're the priesthood. Being built together as his temple. We're living stones being connected and stacked upon one another so that God can dwell in and among his people. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 probably says it most clear. Do you not know? I mean, this is written to a group of Christians that were, I mean, they were off base. They were jacked up. They had some serious problems that they needed to repent of. Do you not know? That you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Well, what's happening on this day in which Jesus comes in and takes his place as the true high priest, what happens on this day is not just significant for the, for the moment that it, that it happened in Jerusalem. It's just as significant today as he builds his temple. Jesus, the true high priest, has authority to determine the purpose of his temple. He's the one that gets to determine what it was built for. Just like it happened in the days that it was first built, he is still determining the purpose for his temple. One of the, one of the books that we're reading in uh, the Equip series, the, the very first group just, just finished it a few weeks ago. It's called The Gospel at Work. And in it, this man describes how, how we often approach work from a very self-centered, selfish perspective. And we make it all about us seeking, seeking, it just depends on your values. Like whatever your values are, whatever you feel good about, whatever you like, you, you, you start with yourself. And, and he says, we need to rethink that. And he, and he shows us this pyramid and he builds this pyramid and he says, just like everything else in life, we need to think about our jobs in the way we think about everything else in life. God says, love, your, love, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and, and strength. That's love him first. And so build the bottom of your pyramid. He's, he gives us this picture and an image of a pyramid. He says, build your pyramid with the base as God. Make him first. Make him the foundation. 
Build everything else on your love for God. This is all over Jesus' teaching. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All things will be added unto you. The idea is that he is always to be first. But then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. There's this idea that now all of a sudden we're not next. We're not the next thing on top of the pyramid. The next thing is others. So we, we got God as the base, and in the middle we got others. And so as, as we think about our roles in life, whether it be our jobs or anything else, he says prioritize God, prioritize others, and hey, finally, don't forget yourself. He's not saying don't love yourself. He's just saying love others like you love yourself. That means that there's a, a, a requirement that we put them first. Paul talks about us considering others' needs as significant as our own. So we put them before us, and then, and then on top of that pyramid, we find ourselves. And here's the problem. We all think the top of the pyramid is the position of prominence and preeminence. And we point at the top of the pyramid as the thing that's most important. But if we take that pyramid and we try to, try to flip it upside down and we begin to build the peak first and stack all the other more important things on top of it, the peak can't sustain the weight. We must put God first, others second, and then ourselves. Just, just imagine, just imagine a people that act this way, that are so concerned about glorifying God with their lives that they're not fighting to get their own but they're actually fulfilling 59 one another commands in the New Testament. Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another. I'm convinced that if every person in this room became so concerned for God's glory that you became concerned about one another, that you would no longer need to worry about yourself because all those things you need all those, all those longings and hurts you feel, all those needs you have would be being met by God's people. But it demands that every one of us build our pyramid with God at the bottom, with others in the middle, and ourselves on top. That's the exact over and over and over through the New Testament. That is the purpose that he has given his people. And the promise is that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that he'll never leave us needing things that we have to have. But he intends to do it through his people who are committed to his purpose. Jesus is the true high priest who gets to determine what his temple will be used for. In addition to that, Jesus is the true high priest who has authority to de define acceptable practices in his temple. He gets to determine what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. This is not a book of just outdated, uh, uh, unrelevant, irrelevant teachings. This, this is a book filled with wisdom and truth and grace. He, he, he gives us instructions to follow. Flee sexual immorality because it's for your good. He gives us instructions to follow because he longs for us to, to be the holy people that he's called us to be. He, he gives us instructions to follow to keep us from harm. And so if he says flee sexual immorality, flee it. 
Because there's no good in you for it. If he, if he says it, there shouldn't be a hint of, of course, joking and harsh words in and among his people. Then, then, then let's not speak that way because it's for the good of his people. It's for the practice of his temple. If he says, love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, proactively step into those things. Because that's the practice he intends to be at work in his temple. Jesus, the true high priest, has authority to drive out impurity with the purity, with purity from his temple. This is not an easy process. We're confronted with the reality of our desires, our, our fleshly, sinful desires regularly. Even maybe now you're sitting here hearing this and, and the idea of sexual immorality or the idea of not serving your brothers and sisters in Christ before you'd serve yourself. The idea of, of, of longing for yourself to be idolized and worshipped. And we love our idols. We, we, we love our idols and, because we love ourselves. Our idols 